0: Turn to Matthew chapter 20. We'll see one of the aspects of his deliverance. The Lord even is interested in our bodies, and one day will resurrect our bodies. But uh, Matthew chapter 20 and verses 29 through 34. Now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him, and behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet, but they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Father, we thank you for your word, and it is our desire to understand it, to apply it, to rejoice in it, uh, to live it. We pray, Father, that uh, your grace would uh, be at work in our hearts as we continue to worship and our responses to your scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, immediately after the sermon, we're going to be setting Joel Kaiser apart to the office of deacon, and so I thought it would be good to refresh our memories on some of the things that are involved in the diaconate, according to the Bible. Uh, First, we need to understand that it is an important office. 1 Timothy 3, verse 13, has Paul saying this, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. In that verse, Paul holds the office of the diaconate in very high esteem. He holds Mercy Ministries in very high esteem. And you will see this throughout the rest of the scriptures. In fact, in James chapter 1, last couple of verses, uh, you will see that James tries to crystallize and summarize Christianity down to two things. He says it is mercy ministries and holiness. Now the rest of James shows that there's more to Christianity than those two things, but those two things at least are involved in our Christian walk to visit the uh, widow and fatherless and their affliction and to keep himself unspotted uh, from the world. Uh, And... Those two things really, I think, represent, uh, at least in the broad sweep of things, the two offices of of deacon and elder. And uh, there's overlap between those offices. They work really hand-in-hand together. But the point that I'm going to be making is that every one of us is responsible for mercy ministries. Everyone's responsible for holiness, right? It's not that the... Officers do all of the work of the ministry. They're leading us into this work of the ministry and to be more and more of an authentic Christian church. I find it significant that in Matthew 25, Jesus says on Judgment Day, He's going to be discerning between the goats and the sheep based on whether they have engaged in mercy ministries or not. It's a very interesting passage. Let me read it for you. Matthew 25 Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. And then he will say the opposite of the goats. Now let me hasten to say that, Uh, Jesus is not indicating that engaging in mercy ministries will turn a goat into a sheep. That would be works, righteousness, salvation, right? But he is saying, if you're truly saved, if you're regenerate, if you've had your goat nature replaced by a spiritual sheep nature, you will be involved in mercy ministries, according to Matthew 25. You will be involved in holiness, according to Matthew 7 and verse 21. But that passage that I, and I do bring this up because this is such a temptation in churches. We should never think of Gil and Trevor and Joel as being the ones who do the work of mercy ministries. That's why I'm bringing this all up here. Every Christian is called to mercy ministries. And so when a need comes up, the first thing that shouldn't go into our minds is, oh yeah, that's what the deacons are for. Now the deacons are designed to stir us up, to lead us, to help us, to mentor us, to encourage us in our mercy ministries so that our whole lives are characterized by Matthew 25. Now, the passage I started the sermon with says a second important feature of the deaconate. It says, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing. Now, the paradox is that honor comes to those who aspire to serve, not to those who aspire to be great, okay? Uh, God delights in honoring those who humble themselves in in service, and the word deacon actually means servant, okay? Okay? They are ordained to office because they're leading the church in what it means to serve. And I think Christ is such an amazing example of what the diaconate is all about. And so this morning I'm going to be preaching on Jesus, the greatest servant, and how he modeled mercy ministry to every one of us. He was a a, a servant of servants, a deacon of deacons, and uh, as a leader of servants, Jesus gives us nine lessons of what it's all about. And hopefully, did we get outlines? Yep, looks like we got some outlines there. First thing that we see in this passage is that Jesus was not programmatic in the way in which he engaged in mercy ministries, and you can see that in two different ways. First way that you can see it is is the fact that these blind men were probably not a part of his schedule. It was obviously a part of God the Father's schedule because God introduced it and made it happen, right? Right. But Jesus was on His way to Jerusalem. He had an appointment to keep, and engaging in this mercy ministry uh, would have interrupted His schedule. And the first application that I want to make this morning is that it's so easy to not do what Jesus did here. Very easy. It's easy to become insensitive to the Holy Spirit's promptings for ministries because it's not a part of our schedule. We've got our whole day mapped out, right? And it's not a part of our schedule. When pastors complain or they joke with each other that ministry would be fabulous if it wasn't for the people, what they're joking about is this tendency to become programmatic and people get in the way sometimes of those programs. We've got all kinds of things that need to be done. And that is such bad thinking. When you are program-driven, in other words, when you're thinking, I've got to get to Jerusalem before the feast begins, okay, that's what's on my agenda, What's going to happen is you're going to ignore the little old lady with her broken down car on the side of the road, and you're probably not going to give the proverbial shirt off of your back to help a poor person that the Spirit has prompted you uh, to, to, to work with. And I'm preaching here not just to the deacons, I'm preaching to every one of us that we need to imitate Jesus. If you are programmatic, your schedule will keep you from ministry, and your budget will keep you from doing what God calls you to do. And uh, the reason for that is, hey, we hadn't planned for it, we haven't budgeted for this. But if your schedule and your budget are utterly inflexible, consider what you are saying by that. You are saying you control the future, and uh, you are omniscient, you know the future, and nobody's gonna change my schedule or change my budget. Instead, James calls upon us to say, if the Lord wills, I will do such and such. And so our attitude should be, if the Lord wills, this is the budget that I plan to live by, but I've got flexibility if the Lord so leads. Okay? We've always got to be dependent upon the Lord, otherwise we're going to be driven by a program. Now there's another way that we can be programmatic and miss the spirit of mercy ministries. Socialism. Is programmatic in its approach to the poor. And let me explain it this this way. Contrary to what some books out there say, Jesus was not focused on disease, poverty, or any other problems out there. He was not focused on needs, as important as those needs were. He was focused on people. And that meant that Jesus did not have as his goal to do away with all disease and all poverty and all misery in life. How do we know that? Well, it's crystal clear in the Gospels and the book of Acts that Jesus did not heal everybody that he could have healed. Uh, There are all kinds of people that he passed by, and these men here, it looked like he was going to pass by them if they had not been calling out, if the Spirit had not prompted Jesus to respond. In the book of Acts, you get the impression that there's a lot of people Jesus didn't heal. For example, in Acts chapter 3, there's this man who was born lame, and it says every day of his life, his relatives and his friends had placed him at the gate of the temple, and if he's been there every day of his life, that means Jesus had to have walked by this lame man many, many times. Why did he not heal him? Well, it was part of God's purposes for Peter and uh, John uh, to to be healing him. Well, the same is true of the multitudes healed in Acts chapter 5. Jesus didn't heal everybody that he could have healed. And if it had not been for the initiative of these two blind men, they probably would not have been healed either. And you might be thinking it's not very loving to say no to a charity case, and it's not very loving to ignore some charity cases that are out there, but we need to realize that Jesus is the definition of love, and Jesus is the definition of true mercy ministries. And we have deacons as leaders, to help us keep from making mistakes as we engage in mercy ministries. Now, if they come up to you and they start worrying that you've been taking on way too many tasks and you are involved in way too many mercy ministries, you're neglecting your family, you're burning yourself out, they're here for your good. They're, 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 they're trained on how to have a balanced mercy ministry. So you need to pay attention to what they say. Now, on the other hand, if they come to you and they say, you know, we've not noticed that you've been involved in any mercy ministry whatsoever. We know you have this kind of a gifting. Would you be willing to come alongside? You need to pay attention to them. You know, if they come uh, together with a, a, a gifts and a, a talent inventory and saying we want to at least know what kinds of things you'd be willing to be involved in the future, get on board. They are leaders to stir our church up to Mercy Ministries. So they can help us on the one hand to avoid the extreme of shutting our heart of compassion off from real needs that are out there, or on the other hand, becoming socialistic in the way in which we do it. Let's think about that socialism a bit. Churches, unfortunately, can become socialistic. Why didn't Jesus heal every lame person in the country, and um, every person who was blind and had other uh, physical maladies. Well, the perverse thought that might go through a liberal's mind is that maybe Jesus wasn't up to the task. We need big government to deal with big problems. You know, you need a big answer to big problems, right? And of course, you know me enough that uh, that is absolutely the farthest thing from what the Bible uh, would say uh, about why Jesus did not Uh, heal everyone, but we're so used to big government developing programs to do away with poverty and throwing more and more money at problems in society that we interpret every big anti-poverty program as the more loving approach, but it isn't. And the church must not imitate big civil government. Anyone who has been served by government welfare knows how impersonal it is. Now, there are people who have been benefited. There's no question about that. But it's not personal, and it is not loving, at least in the biblical definition of love. People feel demeaned with the programmatic approach to mercy ministries. In contrast, Christ approached each person individually and uniquely. Okay, He was sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading, which sometimes meant that Jesus might have looked reactive rather than proactive. He wasn't, but it might have looked that way. His goal was to minister to people that God sovereignly wanted him to minister to, not to fight against all disease, not to make a war against poverty. And the deacons have been trained in how to discern what is a worthy case for for charity. Who is a worthy candidate? There's too much literature out there that avoids big civil government and substitutes big church government and really turns the church into another socialistic program. That's not the way of DCC. Now, here is the irony. We speak of governments that want to put a chicken in every pot and give medical care to every person who declare a war on poverty. What do we call them? We call them messianic states, right? Well, the irony is that the real Messiah didn't do that. So I don't think we should call them messianic states. We should call them demonic states who are fighting against the true Messiah's mercy ministries program and who are robbing individuals, at self-government, families, and churches of the ability and the initiative of being able to engage in a kind of transformative mercy ministries that can turn the world upside down. You read the first few centuries of church history, it was mercy ministries that made such an impact upon the world. And this is where it comes uh, so important that we follow the leaders. And I would encourage you to follow your deacons as they lead us in this area. Now, the true Messiah um, didn't model what big government, big church, big money can do. He modeled the kind of ministry that any one of us Can achieve, and I find that very encouraging. Can any one of us um, help out a person who comes up to us and says, "I haven't eaten in two days, and I need some food"? Of course, that's easy to do. You don't need any government program. You don't need any church program to do that. You don't even need to contact the deacons. You can say, "Oh, sure, come with me. I'll take you to Burger King," and you sit down at the table and you talk with them. There is the personal touch that is there. It's not a programmatic approach. And so Jesus modeled to us the kind of mercy ministries any of us can engage in. Okay, so first point, don't be programmatic. And by the way, the points get shorter and shorter as we go along, so don't uh, think we'll be here forever. But the second principle that I see in this passage is that we must not let individuals get lost in a crowd. Now that's actually implied in point number one, but I separated it out because I really want to emphasize it. Socialism focuses on the crowd, on the group, whereas true charity focuses on the individual. Now, it's not as if Christ ignored the crowd. If you look at verse 29, it says a great multitude followed Him. He didn't ignore the crowd. The crowd was indeed following Him. But it's important to understand that working with multitudes is much different than working with individuals. And interrelationships in a crowd are quite different Than personal interrelationships. For example, some people are very, very conversational when it's just you and them. They might still be conversational if you add two or three people into the group, but the more people you add, the less they'll speak. And there comes a point where the crowd is big enough, you won't get a word out of them unless you address them specifically. What's your opinion on this uh, particular topic? And that's okay. That's just the way that group dynamics uh, works. Uh, And and in this passage here. I think we've got an illustration of somebody who's, well, we'll get to that in a bit. I can tell several of you, uh, probably the exact number of people in a group, uh, before you're starting to feel a bit uncomfortable just spontaneously leading in prayer. Okay, Um, You're willing to pray if you're called upon, and there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. What it means is you're more in tune with group dynamics than extroverts are, okay? Uh, These two beggars were either extroverts or, more likely, they were so desperate that they were willing to break the crowd dynamics rule and call attention to themselves as individuals within the group. But many people will not, and it takes sensitivity to the Holy Spirit to figure out Uh, what is going on what needs to be ministered to and some of you are very very good at this Um, for example I've noticed some of you you have an eye that's roving the congregation and if you see a visitor who's standing all by himself you might be having a blast in the conversation but you pull yourself away and you go over and you talk to this visitor who just doesn't seem like he's able to meet in that's exactly what we're talking about that's great that, that's wonderful. You're, you're not looking at the crowd, you're looking at the individual needs uh, in that crowd. So the crowd might be saying one thing, hey, how come you're leaving? You know, this is a great conversation we're having. It may, it may be stated, it may be unstated. And the Spirit may be saying another thing to you, and it's sensitivity to what the Spirit is leading you to do that's, that's key. Now look at Verse 31. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet, but they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. So the principle in a nutshell, focus on individuals, even in a crowd. Now, the individual may not expect you to focus on him. The crowd may not want you to focus on him, but if our service is to be effective, we must not allow the individual to get lost in the crowd. And actually, this is a protection for us. It really is a protection. We would be absolutely overwhelmed emotionally if we felt like we had to minister to every need that is out there in society. Uh, how can you do that? Uh, it, it's very difficult to do. Jesus focused on the individuals that God the Spirit was preparing for him to deal with. And if you don't have God's guidance, how do you survive when you are being bombarded with so many needs? Well, the way you survive is just hardening yourself and closing yourself off and just being programmatic. Uh, I think some of the most insensitive people on the face of the planet are people involved in government welfare and uh, Indian affairs and other social programs. I think they'd go crazy if they didn't get that way. Uh, It's kind of a protective mechanism, but what I'm telling you this morning is a far better protective mechanism. Instead of Avoiding the individual and having your heart go out to them and getting burned out. Be sensitive to who the Spirit is prompting you to minister to. Okay, the third principle is don't be put off by eccentric behavior. Now, the deacons have been involved in Enough Mercy Ministries. They've run across a lot of eccentric people out there. I've been in homes where, I kid you not, I was wading through garbage up to my knees and my pants were actually pretty dirty when I left that apartment. It was gross, and I wondered, how could anybody survive in all this garbage? It was hard to know where to step, you know, to deliver your food into this apartment. And uh, it's, there's, um, the more you're involved in mercy ministries, the more of those kinds of eccentricities you're going to find. Now, you might not even consider these two blind people to be eccentric, I really do. I think shouting out the way that they're shouting out and throwing off their clothes seems a little bit eccentric uh, to me. Think of it this way. Jesus is in town and he's uh, giving a teaching seminar at Christ Community Church because it's one of the bigger churches around. And So you've gone over there. You could barely squeeze into the auditorium and you're really craning and trying to hear what Jesus is saying and some knuckleheads in the back are crying out at the top of their lungs Lord have mercy on us and people are turning around and saying shut up we're trying to listen to Jesus and the deacons are coming along they're going to call the police if you don't be quiet that's what's going on here right this is not socially acceptable behavior that these two people are engaging in and then to top it off Jesus calls them to him and as soon as he calls them to them they throw off their garments and they come running at least that's what Mark says happened to one of those blind we don't know if both of them did but Mark 10 verse 50 says, and throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. Now maybe he had undergarments on, we're not told, but it seems like the only garment he had, he threw off and he comes running to Jesus. Now maybe I'm reading more into this than is there, but having grown up in Ethiopia and having been accosted by beggars many, many times, I know that hardly any of them have social manners. And the beggars I've met in India and China didn't have any social manners. They lost those social manners in order to survive. And sometimes they could be downright annoying. And as we reach out as a church, you might run across some rather annoying people, eccentric people, people who are just a few bricks short of a full pallet, you know, people who are bums. And if you are put off by their eccentricity, you're going to have a much harder time convincing them that you really do care. Try to look past their issues and see their soul. The fourth principle is to carefully examine the true needs of others. They will come to you with their felt needs, and we'll look at the felt needs in a little bit, but try to understand, okay, I I know what they want me to deal with, but is there something more that goes beyond that? For example, there's a lot of times where people will uh, call us at the office and actually lately, because of all of the thousands of phones we got, we've not been answering the phone too much, but when we were answering the phone, they would be asking for a handout. And you start asking questions, and you begin discerning, oh, this is, this is a major uh, habit of life that they've been going through. Uh, I liken it to uh, they've got a leaky roof, and they're asking me, could you give me a pan to catch some of the drops of water? And yeah, sometimes we give pans to catch drops of water, but what they really need is a new roof. They don't think they need a new roof. They don't think they need discipleship and how they handle their finances and, and, and things like that. But you need to distinguish between felt needs and true needs. Verse 30 says they cried out. Now that's not the unusual part because beggars will do that regularly. But Jesus heard something different about their words. The cry for mercy was different than your ordinary cry for money. Their title of Lord and Son of David was a messianic title and may have indicated they had some spiritual awareness going on. Uh, Perhaps he heard the intensity of their cries, but certainly Matthew, Mark, and Luke all noticed that it was different. And on this occasion, men cried out to Jesus with their voices, and he's still listening between the lines, On other occasions, they're not saying a word. He's still listening between the lines. For example, the woman by the well, Um, she's not said a word, but Jesus already knows a whole lot about her because she's come at a time of day when none of the other women would come. Uh, he He can see she's a social outcast. She's afraid of what other people will say about her and think about her. There's a lot of things he could tell about her right off the bat, probably with her body language, but just by the time of day. And so sometimes, and we've trained the deacons on how to do this, we've got to ask lots of questions in different ways to find out what are the true needs that are going on so we're not, just, we're not missing something big by giving what they're asking for. Ray Comfort, I think, is great at fer- ferreting out some of the unspoken needs that people won't uh, talk about. By the way, speaking of Ray Comfort, Mercy Ministries is a fabulous sedgeway into evangelism. And as we're engaged in uh, Mercy Ministries, we need to at least be able to share a few scriptures on, 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 on how God ministers to people's spiritual needs as well. It gives, if you want opportunities to share the gospel, be involved in Mercy Ministries. Okay, a fifth thing that shows that you care is when you stop your busy schedule and take unscheduled time out for people. That's a huge way of showing you care. Verse 32 says, so Jesus stood still and called them. We have such a hard time standing still in the rat race of life, don't we? We're so busy with schedules that we can't stand still unless we've had forethought to put standing still into our planner, right? Uh, And I'm just as guilty as anybody else on this one. I mean, it's just something I have to constantly fight against because I am so production-oriented, I'm so task-oriented that when uh, a new difficulty or ministry comes in and I'm already way behind schedule, I get stressed out. And so what's happening there? Is instead of my servant becoming a uh, my, my schedule becoming a servant, my schedule has become a dictator, and the very people that my schedule was originally set up to help it 's now causing me to avoid and i 've got to constantly fight uh, against this uh, my wife 's so much better on this than I am, but I think over the years i 've really grown to be flexible in that area and to um, and to trust the Lord with my schedule. Now, I do not want to imply that we shouldn't have schedules. I'm still a very strong believer that everybody should have a schedule, try to keep to it. The Apostle Paul spoke of planning and changing his plans and retooling his plans, but he was always planning, and Jesus, I think, uh, in his ministry illustrates the importance of planning. But our schedules cannot be so inflexible that we aren't able to take the time out when it's needed. So here's an application. Do you mothers take the time out during the day to minister to the heart needs of your kids? Sit down and talk with your kids, or do your kids know it's a death wish to mess with your schedule, okay? How flexible are you to what the Spirit of God is prompting you to do? Now, obviously, we've got to have balance here, and just to illustrate with Christ's uh, uh, ministry, there were times in his ministry where he made people wait until after his public teaching before he would, before he would heal. So it's perfectly appropriate for the, the mom to say, no, wait, we will deal with that, and it's due time. This is not that time. You need to learn patience. And there were times like the Syrophoenician woman where Jesus put things off just to test, uh, you know, where her heart was at. But flexibility, again, is so important. And one of the ways, by the way, that I try to put flexibility into my schedule is I have um, about four hours catch-up time at the end of the week. If God uh, sovereignly brings new things in, wow, I always use my catch-up time and more, it seems like. But anyway, it's important to make your schedule so it's not so rigid you're not stressed out. A sixth principle is the importance of personal presence, and you can see that in verse 32. It says, he called them. Now, this is not an absolute, it's not an absolute because Jesus did heal the Syrophoenician's uh, relative and uh, uh, the centurion's relative from a distance, and we can engage in mercy ministries from a distance, I think we need to use the phones and mail and things like that a little bit more, so it's not both and or either or, but I think it's an unhealthy American trait that we almost always seem to salve our consciences by throwing money at projects from a distance. It's safer because we don't get our hands dirty, we don't mess up our schedules, we don't have to get personally involved. But to me, as busy as Jesus was, it is astonishing how much he was hands-on, hands-on with people. And that's what I appreciate about our deacons. They're willing to get out there and get their hands dirty. In fact, I think they like the doing of it a whole lot better than the administration of it and, and putting reports. Okay, yeah, we've got to get a report out. And, and I appreciate that about them because they're imitating Jesus in being hands-on, getting out there and getting things done. Okay, the seventh principle that Christ shows here is that we need to find out the felt needs of the people. Now, earlier we talked about the real needs. Um, But this is the needs that they are saying, this is what I want you to do for me. And I find it interesting that even though Jesus knows that they're blind, He doesn't assume that that's what they're asking help for. He says in verse 21, what do you want me to do for you? Now there could be different answers to that question. Maybe they're not even thinking He's going to heal them. Maybe they're going to ask, could you give us some money? I mean, He did have a money bag that He distributed money to the poor for. Judas uh, carried that bag. And um, maybe they were more concerned about hell than they were about healing. Uh, The very fact that uh, they use the messianic title could indicate that. So Jesus wants to find out exactly what is motivating them. Uh, Sometimes uh, that can be helpful for later ministry. And uh, I mentioned to you, I, I cannot tell you the number of times that People have asked for one thing, and as you dig, you realize they need something much broader. Yes, we can minister to that, but we've got to be looking at the broader question. Now, this can be abused, and I think usually it is abused, but Gary North wrote an article uh, called um, Bread and Butter Evangelism, and he shows how we reform people sometimes are lousy evangelists because we are constantly answering questions that nobody's asking, right? Right? Uh, We're giving answers to questions nobody is asking. So he said, find out what the people's felt needs are. Show them how the Bible is relevant to those needs. And after solving those problems, maybe they will be more open uh, to the further claims of Christ upon them. And I've trained our deacons to be cautious on this point, but it is an important point. If Jesus could ask, what do you want me to do for you? Surely we can as well. It's not man-centered. It is being sensitive to what God has already done in their hearts. You cannot ram the gospel down people's throats. We need to trust God's sovereignty that He's bringing them to a place where they may be open. And God's the one who brought. Didn't He say, "I make the blind and I heal the blind. I'm the one who makes the lame and heals the lame." God is the one who brings those difficulties into their lives, and what what. Mercy Ministries as a part is not solving everything solvable out there, it's getting on board with what God is doing in their hearts, okay? It's not just the goodness of God that leads to repentance, it's also the severity of God. The eighth principle that makes Mercy Ministries effective is empathizing emotionally with others. Verse 34 says, and Jesus had compassion on them. Now, the word for compassion is my favorite Greek word, splunknidzo, right? It means our intestines just churning, you know, we feel uncomfortable when bad things are happening to other people, but this is dealing with that whole area of empathizing with the plight of another person. And the first few moments after a person unloads their hurt or their particular need, I think is key to being able to express this compassion. Maybe it will show on your face or in your words, but they will quickly sense whether you care emotionally. Now, there's a second benefit of allowing your emotions to be in gear, and that is that compassion is a a motivator. It's a powerful motivator, Uh, and we need to ask God to give us an increased measure of compassion. Every time the word compassion is used of Christ, it results in action on His part to resolve the pain or the problem. Five times the gospel says he was moved by compassion. So ask God for compassion for those whose lives are broken and messed up and ask it on a regular basis. Uh, And I think you will see God multiplying your capacity to minister effectively. The last principle is that we should not underestimate the power of touch. Verse 34 says, "...and touched their eyes." He could have healed them without touch. But I find it amazing how many times Jesus touched people in their ministries, and especially touching people whom nobody else would touch. I know growing up in boarding school for months, I did not experience loving touch. Uh, And I know how important touch is, because when you're missing something, that's when you experience, wow, I wish I had that. Well, beggars probably had not experienced this kind of loving touch unless they had relatives who were taking care of them. They probably had not had that in years. People would toss money at them from a distance. Usually they were dirty and smelly, and who knows, if you get too near, you might get fleas. And what's even worse for a Jew, you might become ceremonially unclean. And yet Jesus was willing to touch them, and in Matthew 8, verse 3, Jesus even touched lepers. That must have astonished the people of his day because what have you got leprosy? Or more important to them, what have you got ceremonially unclean? But he touched them and that act alone, I think would have been emotionally liberating thing because it showed that Jesus cared. It wasn't an impersonal healing. You know, in mercy ministries, there will be people you don't want to touch, let alone to hug. But there's a power in touch that communicates that you care and I think it can be a powerful prelude to openness to the gospel. Now, I'll admit, um, I've, that's not my strong uh, language. You know, I, I've always been more uncomfortable with hugs and touches. We do it, right? We hug one another in this church, but it's like I do it because I'm supposed to do it. Uh, but some people, that's a very strong thing. And women particularly, I think, minister in this way. They see somebody who's hurting, and they wrap their arms around them and give them a hug. That's mercy ministries, okay? It's an emotional mercy ministries that you're engaging in. So cheer up. Some of you have already been engaged in this all your lifetime, right, in mercy ministries. Anyway, just to review, Jesus called himself a deacon, Luke 22, verse 27. That's in the Greek. Called himself a deacon. Paul called Jesus a deacon in Romans 15, 8. And as a deacon to deacons, as a servant to servants, he modeled effective mercy ministries. So here's one of the challenges I want to give. If you want to perfect your mercy ministries, read through the life of Christ, read through all four gospels, and try to ask each passage, is this modeling for me something that I can do to improve my mercy ministries? He's the great model of what it means to be a servant and to to deacon uh, other people's lives. And then also uh, look to the deacons as leaders who can teach you some of the strategies that that they have learned and come alongside of them. Now, from this passage, remember nine things. Don't be programmatic, be personal. Second, focus on individuals, even in a crowd. Third, don't be put off. For sure, don't mock eccentric behavior. Fourth, carefully examine the true needs of others. Fifth, be willing to stop your schedule sometimes. Sixth, give personal presence. Seventh, find out the felt needs of people, really don't jump to conclusions of what they need. Eighth, empathize with others, express compassion. Ninth, do not underestimate the power of touch. And may the Lord receive the glory through all of the things that he accomplishes through our deacons and through each one of us as we come alongside of those deacons. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ministry you've entrusted to us. And we recognize you don't need it. You've given us these ministries for our own growth, for our own uh, tasting and seeing that you are good, for the the wonderful, marvelous, liberating experience of having your life-giving waters flowing through us into the lives of others. Help us as a church to not be a stagnant pond that takes, 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 but never gives out. But, Father, may we have ministry such as James 1, verse 29, describes visiting the widow and orphan in her distress and keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. Do bless uh, each one here and give them joy in ministry. And bless each deacon as they seek to stir up and and energize the congregation to cast vision, to mentor, to teach, to uh, to lead in various ways in Mercy Ministries. And We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.